you know, people's thought processes have changed over the, all the way to the highest of highs of people in this country, in the world, thought processes have changed and mindsets have changed and stuff like that. You know, laws are being enacted that counteract stuff that they didn't believe in 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me that now they're going to put into place something like uh, assisted suicide in what Hawaii. We said it was that they've implemented it now. I believe so. But there are several states where it is already legal. Oh, really? Yes. This it's not really that new of a thing. As a matter of fact. Okay, I didn't know it was actually legal in places. But but regardless, it's you know it's it's inter- it's one of those things. that's interesting to me where somebody did a lot of prison time for something that now he could do legally. Right. The Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. Hey, thank you for checking into this edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you again to be sure to check out all that the CEP Network has to offer, including Raised on the Radio with Colt Bricado and Patrick Blair, Crusher Cast featuring Joe Burrow, and of course, the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. The CEP Network YouTube channel is also growing. We have a lot of great content coming straight to your ear holes and eye holes for that matter. You shan't be disappointed, I promise. Now for this episode, Colt and I engage in yet another riveting chat where we mostly discuss assisted suicide and stoicism. Not very happy-go-lucky topics, but interesting nonetheless. So without further introduction, here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to yet another riveting edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. I am James, and with me as always is my good friend Colt. Are you trying to figure out if you should look there or look at me? Because I'm confused now. Yeah. This is a different setup than normal. Yeah, I'm I'm just looking around. Okay. Just trying to scope the entire area. No, I feel like now that I've got the video in front of me, I've got to focus on the camera more. I'm also going to focus on you. I'm going to split my time between the the viewer and the co-host. Should we just stare at the camera at each other? In there, so we're still looking at each other, but also the viewer at the same time. Do you ever do that though? Like you're looking, you're driving a car, and you're in in the driver's seat, and you're looking at the mirror, the the rearview mirror at the people who are in the back seat, and you talk to them. You ever do yeah, that? Yeah. Or, or you ever look like, say, there's a mirror on the wall there, and there's someone in the mirror. So instead of looking right at them, you right. talk to them in the mirror. Do you find it awkward at all? The mirror thing, like in your house, no, but it does kind of. It's really awkward in the car for me. Like, if there's people in my back seat, I would rather just not have my rearview mirror. Mm. Because you always, like, once you... Even if you're, like, trying to look out the back window, yeah. you look up there and you've always you've got eyes at you. Catch, and you're yeah. like... <laughs> you, you and, catch. and you think they think you're a creeper because you're, like, looking at them well, when you, you're really not. They expose you as a creeper. Right. But you almost always lock eye contact. Somehow you catch that eye contact when you're trying to even back up and that person's just looking at you. It's like, why are you looking at me right now? I need to use this mirror. You do not. So who's the creeper now? Look at your phone like normal. Jeez. Yeah. Be I've, a normal person. I've just noticed that like in a, in a room, if there was a mirror right there, or you know, we can use this, for example, the, the monitor. If I'm talking to you through there, talking to that cult, mm-hmm. it's, sometimes it's awkward for me. I'm like, now the person is right here. Why am I looking at that person in the mirror? It wouldn't be as awkward if we are both looking at each other there. But if you're looking there and I'm looking here, <laughs> then it's odd. Yeah, you're right. That does. You're looking at my ear. That does increase the level of awkwardness there. Yeah, yeah I'd uh-huh. have to agree with that. But at any rate, man, 
It's good to be here this morning. How are you? Talk to me about what's going on with you. Catch me up with the current affairs of the Brocados. How am I? Yes. Sore. Okay. I am on a five-day off uh, from work. Was that considered a vacation? Is five days considered a vacation? I would say Even so. Even if it's not, you're not doing anything for a vacation besides moving houses? No, I think it, it should count. Okay. It's a work vacation. It's not like a vacation vacation where you're actually necessarily having fun. But some vacations are just productive. It sounds like this is a productive vacation for you. So would you say there's three kinds of vacations? There's like an actual vacation where you go somewhere. There's a staycation mm. where you just stay at your house and don't really do much. You just relax. And then there's productive vacation? I think that's fair. Okay. So this is a productive vacation. Okay, good. So I'm in a scenario where I'm selling my house. My parents are selling us their house. But... Before we can move our stuff from our house into their house that we're buying, we have to move their stuff out. So right now, it's basically we have a trailer, and we move their stuff to a storage shed. We come pick up stuff from our house, and then take it back to their house. Mm. And it's just like a vicious cycle over and over and over again. Yeah. And it's sucky. It's a lot of heavy lifting, (laughs) I know. Yeah. And... Moving is always a pain just because there are so many different things that happen, so many different variables that you have to consider. A lot of times your stuff gets messed up in the process or or maybe you, you ding a wall or you've got to take a door off to get something to fit in the room. or there, It's just always something. It's never just, hey, let's take this stuff and move it from this place to the other place mm-hmm. and then we'll be done. And you never realize how much stuff you actually have. Until you go to move. Absolutely. And you, you know how like you have things when you live somewhere and you don't think you're going anywhere, but you never use them. They just sit in a closet. And then when you go to move, you're like, oh, give that to Goodwill yeah. or something like that. And it's like you just hung on to that in your closet for four years. Mm-hmm. Didn't touch it. Didn't even think about it. But you had to have it. At some point, you had to keep that. Mm-hmm. And now you're just going to give it to, to somebody random. Yeah. You're going to give it to somebody to sell to somebody. That's right. kind of odd, right? Right, yeah. Well, I mean, you could sell it yourself. It's kind yeah. of a, always a good idea to have a garage sale of some kind before the moving process begins, maybe. Yeah, but that takes a lot more work. It does. And effort. It does. You know, sometimes it's definitely just easier just to give it away. Right. Even if someone else is, in fact, going to sell it. So, But it's a good time when you're moving to do just that, though, to kind of thin your belongings out a bit so that you, you know, make... So, well, so you don't have to move it for one thing. And you have this moment of clarity where you see that thing that's been in your closet for four years and you're like, you know what? I haven't touched this thing in four years. I'm moving. I don't want to move it with me. I don't want it to, to sit in my new closet. So I'm just going to get rid of it. And right. I think it's, you know, this is an opportunity for you, Colt. It's an opportunity to thin your possessions to a more realistic uh, level that can be more manageable, hopefully, for you and the wife. And you don't, well, you're still going to fill your house up with other things that will sit there for years and years in a closet. And the bad thing is, is this is like going to be forever home territory. So this is going to be, if you find, if you bring something into the house and it goes in a closet, it's hard telling when it's not going to be that closet again. Right. Like it's probably going to be there forever or until we die. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Whichever happens first, forever or until you die. No, but. It's kind of like 
you 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 want to you want to flatten the curve, okay? Okay. Almost like COVID. So this should be neat. <laughs> where are you where are you going? Go ahead. Yeah, it, it sounded good in my mind. It's probably gonna it's gonna sound terrible, but you 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 want to make sure you flatten the the amount of benign possessions that you have in your new place. And so you get rid of the benign possessions you have at your old place so that you don't fill up your new place with those benign possessions because you know you're going to compile more possessions that will, in fact, be not used or useless or both. Uh, and so you just want to flatten the, the level before you even get started because if you take your old junk and add it to the house and then you're going to add new junk because you know that's going to happen. It happens to everyone. Even right. though we put our foot down, we say, nope, not this time. This is my forever home. I'm not going. To, oh yeah, it's happening. It, it's coming. So you just want to flatten the curve and not add more junk to your projected junk. I okay. So I have to question the word benign. Okay. You used it like three times, and I get it. But what does benign actually mean? Does it just mean like not needed, or does it mean? I thought it meant like non-cancerous. <laughs> it's uh. Not significant, I think, is... And I'm going to look it up. I am. <laughs> I would but appreciate it if you did. It's, it's going to annoy me the well, entire you, show if you don't. I want a good... <laughs> I, I want a good definition. I don't want to just... Let's see. You like my Daffy Duck mug? Yeah, I do. I do. That's nice. And, and it, maybe I'm using this out of... It, I don't think so, though. It, it seems like... And I, maybe I've been using this word wrong all this time, because this says of a mild type or character that does not threaten health or life. Okay, I can see that, and that's why it's benign, like tumor. Uh huh. And you also have having no significant effect. There it is. Okay. There I it is. I like it because I said significant. So see, I, I knew that I was, I was onto something. It also says of gentle, of a gentle disposition, or showing kindness and gentleness. And so the way that I was using it, it is. Having no significant effect or harmless. So if I'm considered being benign, I'm being gentle. I guess so, yeah. Okay. But uh, I'm not going to use that word. So <laughs> yes. trying trying to put it back into the sentence, I guess useless would have been a better word than benign. But it's having no significant effect in your life, right? Okay. okay. And so the possessions that you have that I said were benign are things that obviously not like your Daffy Duck mug, which is significant in your life absolutely right yes. it, it plays an important role mm -hmm. there's no way that thing is going in the closet for four years and not being used because it's a great mug and right? it holds coffee which and, is important uh, absolutely yeah. so yeah so it that's the you know but the opposite of benign in a tumor is malignant which means cancerous <laughs> but that's not a malignant mug <laughs> right so the, hashtag malignant mug right <laughs> I'm not sure what that would look like, <laughs> but at any rate, you know, uh, yeah, moving, moving's hard. And, and speaking of, you know, malignant tumors, um, there's been a lot of news lately about assisted suicide. I think that it's it's something that I haven't really thought about or heard about in a long time. You know, I remember. I don't know if you do. I guess you don't because you were asking about him earlier. Uh, when Jack Kevorkian was was fresh in the news, mm -hmm. you know, I remember that being a thing and. Um, of course, I was a younger person at that point in time, and didn't really, I couldn't really grasp the, you know, the the full effect of of what assisted suicide really meant. And 
um, I'm surprised by the more recent news that it's that it's still, I, I guess, uh, it still has a stigma. It, it still has um, a debate. There, there's still people on, on both sides of that debate that are per, you know pretty passionate about what they believe in. And so I guess I'll just you know ask you, what do you think about assisted suicide? Is that is that something that you feel like should be a, is it le- should it be legal? And B, what do you think about the ethics and the morality of assisted suicide for both the patient and the prescriber? Prescriber seems like mindset would be the biggest thing when it comes to that, I think. Mm. Like, I'm not, I'm, ta- I'm take, taking all of the laws and the politics and all that kind of stuff out of it. Just the mindset you would have to have to just be like, I am helping somebody. They feel like I am helping them. I am helping somebody versus I'm killing somebody. Yeah. Or something like that. Uh, I don't I don't know that I've thought about it, like what my, my ethics are mm. towards it. On one hand, if you are if you are terminally ill and you feel and you feel like that's your only option to get away from the pain and things like that, I'm I'm like, well, it's your choice. But then on the other hand, you're kind of probably not in your right state of mind mm. when you are in that state and it can cloud your own judgment toward yourself and things like that too. But I don't, I don't know which side I lean more towards, to be honest with you. So what you mentioned there at the last was basically consent. Yeah. Do you have the capacity f- to truly consent to something like that when you're in a, a great amount of pain and suffering and even the uh, the mental turmoil that happens when you become terminally ill? It may very well cloud your judgment. That's, that's definitely a good point. So a lot of people would probably enact a, 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 uh, an advanced directive, uh, which is basically just a, an end-of-life... Uh, uh, directive. It, it's kind of like a, a will. This is what I want done with me. Like, for instance, if I'm in a car wreck and I go into a coma and I'm on life support and the doctors indicate that there's no way that I'm ever going to breathe on my own again or I'm ever going to wake up, that advanced directive says, pull the plug, right? Um, and, and in a way, that's, I mean, it's not the same as assisted suicide because it's actually taking the assistance away from life. Um, but in a way, it's, it kind of parallels with that because you are taking an action that is ending someone's time here on this earth. Right. And so you could, I would imagine that people would put that in their advanced directives. Now, there, there's a couple of other components here in my mind. A, whether or not you believe in God and afterlife. That's going to weigh on your morality and the ethics involved. Um, so if you don't, then that takes away the stigma from that, from thinking that, you know, if, if I, because most religions, at least that I know of, it looks very poorly on suicide, right? Like you're, you're not supposed to do that. That will send you to a bad place. Um, so that's definitely going to weigh in. But if you don't believe in that, then you're simply, it, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know. It's just like killing anything that's suffering. You know, if your if your pet gets run over, oftentimes where we come from out here in in the country, um, your dog gets run over and it's suffering. You you help it out by shooting it in the head, ending its life pretty quickly. Right. Um, 
I don't, I've never done that. I've never been able to. I've always had to have someone else help me with that because I just, I couldn't bring myself to actually do it. I could never be the doctor prescribing um, any kind of assisted suicide help, whether, it, I think a lot of times they do it by medication, if not all the time, like by an actual uh, pills, uh, a bottle of pills. And so it's something that's, I guess, eases you out and no pain and you just kind of pass on. Um, I don't think I could do that, even though it's a nonviolent way of, assisting someone to cross over into death, um, knowing that I'm the one that's doing that, I, I probably couldn't do it. But that still doesn't necessarily exactly mirror my thoughts on assisted suicide. Okay. You know? So um, what are your actual thoughts on assisted suicide? Um, well, it, that's a, it's hard for me to, to really determine. I would be so afraid if I were terminally ill, and this would be my luck, that as soon as I got some assistance and, and went ahead and, <clears throat> and suicided myself, uh, it'd be like the next day or the next week at, at Tops, they, they found a cure. And I just was just that, you know, I jumped the gun just a little too much. Um, I, but, I but, but, then, but then again, which I mean, I guess, I guess age, I guess when I think about this, I, I think about somebody older that's terminally ill, and I shouldn't because anybody could be in this position. Could be anybody. Um. Yeah, I I can I can see, I can see where conflict would come in. Yeah, and I don't know. That that would be probably one of my biggest things, and not even though if if I was suffering, um, and it, the suffering was so great that I couldn't be coherent or I couldn't um, reach out to my loved ones or anything like that, then obviously that would that would definitely play a role. You know, but as long as it doesn't matter, as long as there's time left, as long as you do still have breath in your in your body and your lungs, and and you, you're at least somewhat cognizant to be able to see your family, especially if you have kids or you know just your family in general, then it seems to me like I would want to spend every last second that I have here doing just that and not killing myself any sooner than what I already am going to die because I do want that time with them. So. And this might sound terrible, but do you think, I mean, do you think there's people out there who feel like at, after a certain point that they are a burden on their family and others? Mm -hmm. And that could that, does that play a factor in, in you know, these, med, these are medical bills that are racking up for somebody that's laying in a hospital bed who, and yeah. in, in, if you don't believe that you're going to get any better and doctors are telling you you're not going to get any better, we're going to, we're just making you comfortable kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, what's the, you know, what do you, what do you do? Yeah. You know? No, I think that's definitely the case with a lot of people and not just the financial burden, but the burden of care. You know, if someone's not able to feed themselves or change themselves, bathe themselves, um, they become incontinent, you know, there's just all these different things that the caregiver now has to tend to. And yeah, that could, and, and it does all the time. I remember when, when my dad got sick, you know, he, he checked out and when he was diagnosed, um, and then five weeks later, he was gone. Uh, pancreatic cancer, stage four. And uh, the, the, those five weeks, it was, it was life-altering for him because it, the, the slide, the decline was pretty quick. You know, but I, I, I could see him n not wanting to be a burden 
but the burden that that he perceived, we were all happy to take care of him, but the, the burden that he perceived became greater and greater because his decline happened so quickly and he needed more and more care until the very end. So, okay, so don't take this question the wrong way, but do you think that it was easier for him to let it all go because of the way he lived his life and you know, his position being a, a preacher and stuff mm-hmm. and, you know, just having the mindset, know, knowing in his mind exactly what was going to happen once he passed, you think it was easier for him to accept everything a lot faster than it might for a lot of people? Probably. I think so? Yeah, probably. Although he did worry a lot uh, as he was dying about leaving us behind. Yeah. Because he was very much the, the patriarchal, which I know that's kind of a, a hot-button word nowadays, but he was a patriarch in a good way. He was definitely the the head of not just, like, our, our immediate household growing up and then with the grandkids and everything. He was, like, a, a figurehead in the community, obviously, with the church and, and just the community at large. And so he was worried about leaving everybody behind because so many people depended on him. He was there for, for so many different people. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I do think that him letting go and, and slipping and because and, it seemed like at some point in time he just kind of, like I said, checked out. Mm-hmm. And so once he did, the last couple of weeks, he would barely even open his eyes and he, he wouldn't respond much. And so when he, as that was happening, I, th- I think he literally just kind of his mind went somewhere else. And, and, and possibly the cancer had spread to his brain, too. We don't know, but... It seemed like he just was, he was making his peace and and was already kind of going. Mm-hmm. It, like death, oftentimes is a process unless you die violently, or immediately have a heart attack or something like that. Death is kind of a slow process. It's more of a drift, from what I can tell, from what I've seen with people, especially him, because he was the closest one that I watched go. But it's like a drift into. You know, whether or not you believe there's there's something else or, or just a drift into darkness, it's a passing away of, of this life onto something else. Right. And uh, and that's what he experienced. And so so I, I bring that up in the first place because it it makes me think about other people, and, and a lot of people don't have the same perspective of, of going to a better place when they pass on. Um, and so if, if they're going through that same suffering and they're trying to hold on to life because that's what people do. It's it's our very nature to to survive and to hold on to life until our very last breath, and so that's just what we you know how we're built and how our, our minds work. But um, for someone who's going through that that suffering, because it's not just the pain suffering. There's a lot of mental turmoil too, a lot of anxiety. You know, I wasn't used to seeing my father anxious because he just wasn't that kind of guy. He he worried some, but he was never like an anxious person. And he became anxious closer to the end of his life, because of the you know the the pers- you know the perspective of, of looking at death in the face basically, and that drifting happening, and you know it's coming, right? And 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 for the days that you have left, you know that you're dying, like actively, literally, and the kind of mental turmoil that causes, I, we, it's hard to discount that now that I've seen it, mm-hmm. you know. So people going through that. It's not just because we talked about consent earlier in state of mind. It's not just that they are physically dying; they're mentally going through, you know, this extremely anxiety-provoking, you know, change that a lot of people probably have a lot of trouble handling. You know, that's why a lot of people toward the end of their life get certain medications to try to help 
you know, just relieve anxiety. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Kevorkian earlier, and you said that I didn't know much about it. I don't. The the only name, but the main reason I know that name is because for some reason, small things stick in my head, my brain, for when I was younger about like if something happens or somebody says something that I didn't understand at a certain point, for some reason, it it will stick with me until I figure out what they were talking about. Mm. If that makes any sense. So like, there was a f- episode of Fresh Prince of Bel Air, where I don't know if it was Dr. F- or, or somebody like that was in the hospital and their doctor had a name that was close to Kevorkian. Everybody was like, are you, what? Like they were freaking out that their doctor was mm-hmm. you know, related or whatever. So, and I didn't understand it because I was young and I had no idea who the, this Dr. Kevorkian So yeah, it's one of those things that just sticks in my head, but yeah. still, um, so he, he actually did prison time and that that's, that's one of those things that's crazy to me. And I understand that it was a different time and, you know, people's thought processes have changed over the, oh, you know, all the way to the highest of highs of people in this country, in the world, thought processes have changed and mindsets have changed and stuff like that. You know, laws are being enacted that counteract stuff that they didn't believe in 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to me that now they're going to put into place something like uh, assisted suicide in what was Hawaii. We said it was that they've implemented it now. I believe so. But there are several states where it is already legal. Oh, really? Yes. This It's not really that new of a thing, as a matter of fact. Okay, I didn't know it was actually legal in places. But but regardless, it's, you know, it's, it's, inter- it's one of those things that's interesting to me where somebody did a lot of prison time for something that now he could do legally. Right. That's happening with other things as well. I mean, even with the marijuana. Right. You know, there are people still incarcerated for charges against them regarding marijuana, and now several states have it even available for recreational purposes. Right. And just about everybody has it for medical purposes now. So... It, the same with the assisted suicide. How do you, I don't know how you mitigate that, how you mitigate the effects of making something legal after it was illegal for so long and someone, you know, in fact loses eight years of their life. Right. And, you know, how do you make up for that? Or, or do you just consider it like this is us moving forward? This is us making this change for society as a greater, you know, for the for the greater good of, of society itself. But the fact is when they committed the quote-unquote crime it was in fact illegal right and so they're still paying for doing something that was against the law at that time right um still still difficult though but i was looking for the states i I don't there were there were several i think oregon has had legal assisted suicide since like 97 holy cow really something like that it's it maybe it was maybe it was 2004 i saw a lot of dates and now i can't find it again and i don't want to spend too much time looking but yeah there there are like i think washington dc oregon Hawaii now, maybe Colorado, but several of the states have legally assisted suicide. And so another difference here, here's another kind of a a contrast, is that you've got legally assisted suicide, which is done with, you know, a, a certain prescription medication that I would imagine eases suffering 
and it probably eases anxiety, and it's, it's probably like a slow drift too. I would I would just imagine. I doubt it's something that just eats your stomach out, you know, from the inside out and causes you a lot of pain. They wouldn't do that. Okay, so you've got that versus someone say taking a a, a gun to their head, or jumping off a building, or hanging. Um, the the latter of those two is a lot more violent. It's a, it's a lot. I, I would assume it's anxiety provoking, especially if you jump off a building. You know, right before you hit the ground, can you imagine what's going on in your mind? You know, so um, I, I guess for most people, it's like if you know if you have a loved one that's terminally ill in the hospital, even though they get to a point to where they think that maybe it's done, maybe it's over. Let's go ahead and you know cut the cord. You know, pe- people might if if somebody's still alive there's still a chance mm-hmm. kind of a kind of a thing. Yeah. You know, and especially if it's a loved one, if it's somebody in your family, you know, it's, I don't know. It, I've never been through this, so I don't know, but I can't, I just, what we talked about so far, I can imagine how hard it would actually have to be to be in already be in the situation that's happening. You have a loved one that's terminally ill, but now that loved one, you know, wants to just end it all. Right. Could, if they if it if it was going to happen on their own, could it happen the next day, possibly? Mm-hmm. So you know what I mean. Like it's a, but they're still alive. So right now I'm looking at it like there's still a chance that you're going to make it through this, and unless maybe they are older, which I said, but that that's kind of what's been sticking in my mind is like an older person. But well, I, I don't know. It's it can be anybody. I think I don't have the source to back it up right now which is typical for me when I'm actually in a conversation like this. But I think that most of assisted suicides are, in fact, you know, they, they are the patients are older people. Okay. You know, because younger people still have more drive to survive, still have the, a different uh, uh, perspective on trying to beat this thing, trying to recover, you know, whatever the case may be. Older folks, you know, I remember my grandfather. He was alive till he was 93 years old. But I remember when he was in his, I think he was in his later 80s, he would just talk to me about how he was just so tired, you know, and he was still relatively healthy at that point in time. He really didn't suffer at all until closer to the end of his life. But he just mentioned how tired he was. And he said, you know, all of all the people that he loved before, you know, minus his, his wife and, and his sons and, and, of course, his grandkids, but the more generations there are, the, the kind of the to an extent, you're, the more removed you are from the actual connection. So, in, in other words, he lost his you know parents a long time ago. All of his brothers and sisters were already gone. All the people that he knew coming up, the the people that supported him, the people that took care of him, the people that you know were his role models and and his you know just everybody that reinforced him as a person, especially a younger person come up, they had been gone for a long time. And aside from that, he has had all kinds of experiences. He's been, you know, around the country and I don't, I don't know if he ever went around the world or not, but he just, he did a lot of stuff. He did a lot of traveling, a lot of fishing, you know, a lot of, a lot of cooking fish, uh, a lot of church, you know, he just did a lot of all those things. And at some point in time, you just it seems like for people that are older, more advanced in their years, they have this sense that they've lived life and it's okay. 
Right. You know, it's okay to die. And younger people typically don't have that because we have our whole lives ahead of us. And I'm using us, you know, I'm still putting myself in that category. But we still have so much of our life ahead of us that we're more willing to fight and more willing to push and press and, and wait and, and try to survive to the very last breath. To where as an older person, they're like, yeah, you know, I think I'm done. I think this is okay. You know, I got this terminal disease. Uh, I didn't want it this way. I wasn't ready to go yet, but I have had a good life. So let's call Jack Kevorkian and let's get this thing over with. Right. I think they're more likely to do that. Right. And, um, and, and you know, that's, that's okay. It's a, it shows a difference in the in the life the the, the developmental um, different uh, developmental stages of a person. Right. And I don't remember them off the top of my head once again, but there's a lot of different stages and and uh, the, one of the main goals and this kind of bleeds into Buddhist philosophy a little bit, but um, one of the main goals of, of that philosophy is to avoid suffering, and to avoid suffering. You, you don't get attached to things, basically. You, 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 uh, you learn how to let go of the things that you, as humans, that we normally attach to. And so learning how to let go of that is really a, a way to become very stoic in, in the way that you perceive life. You know, I, I love my laptop, right? I love it. But what would happen if, if something happened to it and it broke and I had to let it go? Would I be okay? Well, obviously, with a laptop, I'm going to be because I can replace it. But what about a family member, or, right. or what about even you know, money, my house, my car, my truck? Um, what if what if I lost it? How what would that do to me? And would I be able to avoid that sense of attachment to the point that it's not going to cause me suffering, right? And um, obviously, for for anybody who's not a sociopath, um, your, our attachment to people is probably the most difficult. It should be the most difficult of the things to detach from or, or to not grow that strong attachment to. And so when you lose people, you are going to suffer. And the same can be said for your own life, I think. Uh, if you can detach from that and you know that you are on your way out, and, and if, you could, if you can do that and, and remain unattached to a degree and stoic about that, then at least... Your body might be dying, but you, you won't go, go through the same mental turmoil that you would otherwise because you are so attached to the life that you have. Right. So That's something that's pretty rough to not be attached to, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why you see Buddhists out, you know, out in, a, in a cave or something uh, doing a mantra and meditating, uh, detaching from, from things. Right. Um, which you, you don't really see that. But that is kind of part of a, the Buddhist philosophy. And Stoicism is a thing all of its own, too. Um, Stoics date back to, you know, um, Marcus Aurelius, and, and before him, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure, I'm, I'm missing probably to the uh, Greek philosophers, I think. There was a Greek philosopher, I don't remember the name. But uh, even in the Roman, the, the Roman emperors would, would practice Stoicism. At least Marcus Aurelius was a big one on that. And they, <clears throat> there are methods to use. There, there's a way that you can practice Stoicism. And, and you, can, you can sit around, and basically what you're doing is, and I actually use this in practice some with clients, but you're diffusing the impact, the emotional impact of, of things like death or like terminal illness. And so the way that you do that is you practice in your mind. You, you kind of consider the worst possible case scenario, and I've always done this to some degree naturally. I consider the worst possible case scenario, and that's what I expect. Yeah. So that way, the only surprise I could possibly get would be a good one. 
you're not going to catch me off guard because I've already expected the worst. Do you think that's the best way to look at things? Not necessarily. I mean, I think it has its utility. I think it has some benefit, especially when if your if your primary objective is to minimize the impact of you know the the emotional impact of, of anything like that, because you can do it with anything. You can you can practice in your mind. You can mentally practice losing a loved one and just to see what it does to you. But doesn't that thing doesn't that kind of I've thought about this before, but it kind it kind of. If you go too deep into that, it can screw you in like a, a lot of other areas if you have, because it kind of lowers your expectations on other things in life too. Yeah, and I also think that when you do that, of course, you don't have to stay in that mode more than just for the sake of practice, but you're not being mindfully present in the moment either, you know, and so it kind of goes against that that particular mindset and it takes away some of the enjoyment of what's right in front of you. Right. Because you're so worried about manipulating the, the potential impact of whatever it is that you're trying to diffuse. It's, but when you're doing that, there's something right in front of you that you're not actually enjoying. So let's just say that you are mentally preparing yourself to lose a loved one. And so you just, you know, you think about it and you practice it in your mind, what you're going to do, how you're going to respond. And the whole time that person is still there and you're missing those moments because being a stoic is kind of being like blah. Right. To an extent, you know, right. there's no high highs, but there's no low lows. You just kind of stay right in the middle. But honestly, as human beings, we're meant to have high highs and low lows as, as long as you don't suffer from something like bipolar disorder where it's extreme. Right. Um, but I mean, it's still in and, and, and some to some degree, it's still good to try not to get too high and too low. It, you know, you want to you want to keep things within a, a good balance. But we're supposed to experience we're supposed to experience uh, different levels of emotion. It, it's part of life, and it's there for a reason. Well, you, you're just trying to learn over time, like, I want to look at the end result and think about what I think the end result's going to be in whatever situation, whatever scenario you're in, but then, but also don't shy too far away from what's actually happening in front of you, because if you, even if you think it's going to be a bad end result, you could probably change that if you are in the moment and you know, focus on what's going on right now, mm. you can change it maybe and make it a little better, you know, but I, I was just thinking about even if you dumb it down to like, if I'm on vacation for five days, like we talked about earlier, if I'm on vac a actual vacation for five days, but I'm thinking that this is going to go by so fast and I'm going to be back to work in six days, you know, I'm not going to be really paying attention and be in the moment with the five days that I'm on vacation and should be having a good time. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, what's going to happen after this and how fast it's going to come. Right. And I'm, I'm bad about that sometimes. I yeah. really am. Yeah. I've been that way too. It's like you get on vacation and you just count the days and it, that in and of itself causes some suffering, you right. know, because you're not really focusing on the vacation. You're focusing on the, the future, the end of it, the, the dread that you're going to have because everything's over with. Like they always say, like Sunday's the most stressful day because you know that, you're kind of gathering your thoughts and getting ready for work back back to work the next day. Mm -hmm. You know, Friday you're like, "Heck yeah, I'm off work. I got a full weekend, uh, you know, two days off, and you know we're gonna we're gonna rock it." And then you get that one day off, and then now you're back to Sunday, and you're thinking about what's gonna happen on Monday at work. Right. So it's like you're losing, you know. And I don't know. It's a good thing to be mentally prepared about what's gonna be happening, but I I, I think you have to be. Maybe you have to learn like several different outcomes or, or 
think in your mind things could go this way or things could go this way, but you have to be able to accept either way that it's going to go so it doesn't give you anxiety and make you so anxious. Mm-hmm. I like the term acceptance there. I think acceptance is a, is a big key. And oftentimes, though, as stoic as you may be and as much foresight as one may have, like back to death, for instance, you, you never really know how the death of someone is going to affect you until it does. You have an idea. You, you think so. But you never really know for sure until it happens. Um, once, it, once it happens and it sinks in and it's real, the impact is real, then that's when everything kind of comes to fruition and, and you start to experience the emotions and the thoughts and, and the behaviors and everything that is, is wrapped up into being a human suffering the loss of someone that was close to you. You, you, don't, you can never really prepare yourself 100% for sure. So you always have to be adaptable to some degree or else you start to experience dysfunction and disorders might set in. And so <clears throat> those could be short-term or long-term. But I think it's, it's still, once again, it is somewhat helpful to be somewhat mentally prepared. I mean, because it sucks when you get caught off guard. I've also had uh, some family members who died suddenly. You know, I had an uncle who died in a car wreck uh, 15 years ago or so. And because of the suddenness of it, when that happened, there was no time to prepare to say goodbye. All you had was the, the, the moment when it happened. And so there was no time to think ahead. There was no time to mentally prepare ourselves for the, the turmoil and the loss. And so either way, you, you kind of have to be adaptable. But acceptance is, is something that is actually part of the grieving process, the stages of grief. And once you come to acceptance, that's when you're really start, starting to able to let go. You're, you're able to start letting go of the suffering that is caused by your attachment to that person. And so that's, once again, kind of where Buddhist philosophy comes in pretty handy uh, when it comes to that stuff, although I don't practice letting go all the time, right. you know. I just, for, especially for some things, like your children and, your, you know, your, your spouse or your, you know, your significant other, whatever the case may be, you don't want to sit around practicing letting them go all the time. I don't. I don't. I think that's part of their philosophy, but that's why monks don't get married <laughs> and they shave their heads. Yeah. Because they practice letting go of their hair as well as everything else. Actually, I didn't know that. Is that, that that's an actual thing? No. Oh, you made uh, that up. I okay, did. I did. That's pretty good, right on the spot. Well, it, I thought it was kind of funny myself, but it obviously didn't land because <laughs> you were right there with me, thinking that I knew what I was talking about. I, I, no, no, I was just rambling. No, I, I think all in all, I think the biggest thing is like, especially when it comes to the suddenness and you know things you don't expect, just accepting again, knowing that anything can happen at any point. Yeah. And especially when it comes to those like your loved ones and those that are close to you, making sure that you're you're not like like whenever you leave somebody, make sure that everything's even keel and you're on good terms. Yeah. You know, like I would never want like me and you to get in an argument right now and then we one of us leaves and then we never see each other again because there's a car wreck or something like that, you know. Right. And because then you're going to be living with mental turmoil knowing what happened before that or the last words that were said to each other was yeah. you know whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I just I think it the old I, and I don't think it's for everybody, but I think it's the older that I get the more I realize how important that kind of stuff is. And mm -hmm. I haven't really seen in much death in my life, but it just, 
I, I the older I get, the more I understand how important it is to keep the people close to you close, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of let the re- let the rest of the stuff go. If you're gonna have anxiety or be anxious about anything, let it be about the people that are closest to you, because you can fix that pretty easily. Don't worry about the extended people who don't really make that big of an impact on your life in general. Yeah. Cause then you're just, you're hurting yourself. Mm. And I, I think it's a term I've seen it on Facebook a hundred times, but it's like, uh, if you let, if you're th- something like, if you're thinking about somebody else, you're basically letting them have free rent in your brain. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, kind of true because they're probably not, they probably don't have the same mental turmoil about you. You know, it's probably, it's, you just, you're letting them think about it, but it's not easy to do, man. Your brain thinks about things, whether you want to think about them or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens the older I get too. I never had this stuff 10, 15 years ago. Now there's stuff that like, I don't really want to think about, but it just is recurring and you just have to learn how to sort it all out mm-hmm. and move on, I guess. Right. I think so. I think redirecting your thoughts, because if you just let your mind go to its own devices, it goes all over the place. You know, that's what, once again, uh, I've I've read a couple books. One of them was called, it was a Buddhist philosophy book, and it was called uh, Taming the Monkey Mind. Yeah. You know, and and I've read that that phrase in different iterations on several different occasions in several different uh, sources, but, you know, the the mind is like like a monkey. It's just, you know, going all over the place and climbing the walls and throwing feces and, you know, whatever the case may be. It's just, it's wild and it's it's erratic and it needs to be tamed. And I think that's where we can self-redirect, <clears throat> excuse me, our thoughts, our minds, in order to make sure that it's useful and productive and not um, erratic and not focusing on, on the things that don't really matter. In essence, what you're saying is don't sweat the small stuff. Right. And what you're saying, don't sweat those who really don't matter that much. Like if there's a person at work you're not really close to and they're just annoying and you're spending too much time thinking about how annoying they are, you could be using that time thinking about how much you love your your spouse or your mom and dad or whomever. Uh, instead, you're giving that that power to that person who you don't even really care for. Right. And so I agree with that. But I also, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. Like you were saying earlier, it's kind of like don't go to bed angry. Yeah. You know, never go to bed angry. Never Never leave the house angry because something could happen and you don't see each other again. And whoever's the one left will experience the, the, the mental turmoil of that last moment or, or whatever the case, circumstance, uh, for the rest of their lives. And it's, it's going to cause a lot of suffering for that person. And so uh, also don't sweat the small stuff with the people that you love. You know, you're going to have arguments, you're going to have disagreements, fights. Uh, people are going to annoy you. They're going to piss you off, whatever. Um, it, it's always a good idea to try to rectify whatever's causing that gap just as soon as possible because you never know what's going to happen. Right. And having that foresight, I think, is is definitely something good to have because it does keep you in the present moment as long as you're focusing on what you can do right now to make things better, you know, from moment to moment as, as the moments go on, which they inevitably do. They do keep on going, don't they? They, they do. So at any rate, we're at... Uh, we're at a good time here where we could continue to rant and go on, but that might carry us over. We are getting ready to speak with Dr. Rob Kelly. I'm excited. An addiction specialist. And so he's going to educate us here in just a little bit about addiction and all things related to addiction and how people can find help. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. Absolutely. And so we're going to cut it off now, and I bid you adieu until like 20 minutes 
from now when we start talking again. Right. So, yeah. All right. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. And we are out. <laughs>